Amen. Thank you, uh, Stephen, for that. Uh, for those of you who I do not know, my name is Ryan, and I'm the college pastor here at Northway, and it really is always a joy of mine to come and to be able to study God's Word with you on a Sunday morning. And I'm going to take a page from Pastor Stephen's book. Uh, whenever he comes up and preaches, he's been preaching through the New Testament book of James, so I figured I would pick an Old Testament book with the letter J. And so we're going to start studying the book of Jonah whenever I have the opportunity to, to come and share God's Word. And I'm really excited about it. It's something I've been studying for a little while now, and have just been excited about it, and so I'm, I'm ready for us to be able to walk through it over the next uh, little bit. And so uh, the, the thing is, I could probably poll many of you and, and say, okay, do you have some sort of familiarity about Jonah? And the chances are a majority of the people here have some sort of idea of the story of Jonah. Even if you didn't grow up in church, even if you haven't been in the church world that long, you probably have some idea, some familiarity of the book of Jonah. It's a pretty popular story. And, and if you're here and you're like, I have no clue what you're talking about. Who's this Jonah guy? Why should I know him? That's okay. In fact, you might be in a better position than the rest of us. Because something, uh, I was watching Pastor Tim Mackey preach on the, the book of Jonah. Something he said is, a lot of our ideas and familiarity, familiarity with Jonah has been tainted by our vegetable singing friends from when we were kids. And, and I will say, I confess, I, I don't remember if I've seen the VeggieTales movie of Jonah. I probably did, but I don't remember it, so maybe it's not fair to bash it. But the truth is, with a lot of our stories from the Bible, when we tell them in children's stories, a lot of times we kind of miss them. And especially with the book of Jonah, it's easy to miss. I, I think if you pick up a bunch of children's books that cover Jonah, a lot of times they're only going to cover like half the book. Like they're going to leave out significant portions, and a lot of times they're going to miss the main idea. And so the chances are for us who have kind of grown up and are familiar with it, we might have had some maybe wrong assumptions about the book of Jonah. Like when I start talking about Jonah, many of us probably start picturing a whale or a big old fish, right? And that's where our mind goes. And if we were to say, okay, here's what Jonah is about, we would say it's this kind of moral fable almost, where we're saying, hey, don't do this. Don't disobey God, because if you disobey God bad enough, he'll send a fish after you, right? Like, that's what we walk away with. Or maybe we have this idea of maybe Jonah being this reluctant hero who refused the journey at first, but then he went, and he was faithful, and he was a good, and he's like a hero of the story. Or maybe we have some idea of it being a story about the Ninevites who all repented, and it's this great uh, conversion story for the Ninevites, and that's the main thrust. But here's the thing, I think all of these actually miss the heartbeat of Jonah. They miss what it's primarily about. And so what we know to be true about the Bible is what it tells us that it is God's breathed out word, that it has authority in our lives, that Hebrews tells us it is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts to the very core of who we are. It opens us up. It teaches us, it rebukes us, and ultimately it is sufficient to do what it sets out to do, which is to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. That as we read it, we see our great need of a Savior, and as we read it, we see who the Savior is, namely Jesus. And so when we engage God's Word, it's important that we check our assumptions at the door, that we set our preconceived notions on the floor and we come before it humbly saying, God, teach us what you will. Lord, speak to us. 
And so I wanna invite us to do that as we engage with Jonah, as hard as it may be, maybe set aside these uh, songs from Veggie Tales and these children's stories and the big old fish. Let's just set that aside and engage with God's word and say, hey, what do you have for us in this story, in the book of Jonah? And I believe what we're gonna see, the, the main thrust here in Jonah is that it is the story of a hard-hearted man running from God. But it's the story of a merciful God relentlessly chasing this man. It's Jonah and God having a conversation. It is God dealing with the heart of Jonah. And in turn, he's inviting us into the story saying, hey, I want to deal with your heart as well. Jonah is in, or God is inviting us into his story so that he can address our own hearts. And so I just want to encourage you to do that, to, as we engage God's word, humble yourself before it and say, Lord, open me up, deal with my heart in this. Now, Jonah's going to look a little bit different from some of the other books in the Bible, some, especially the other prophetic books. A lot of times they'll have the prophet who will speak, and you'll see these long dialogue of his message that he proclaims, and then you'll see some story, but Jonah is really all story, and in the story, it's kind of weird at times, that there's some, some irony in it, that it's meant to be humorous at times, there's kind of a satire to it, and, and what it's doing is, again, the author's trying to engage us and trying to bring us into the story so that God can speak to our hearts. And so I want to encourage you to allow it to do that. So we're going to begin by just working through it, working through the first four verses in Jonah that Pastor Stephen just read. And I want to read for us again, verses one through two. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and that's where we're going to start. Starting in verse one, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So it begins in, in this translation saying, now the word of the Lord, or other translations say, and the word of the Lord. And right there, it's kind of weird to start a story that way, right? Like it's starting with a conjunction. It's starting with something that's connecting, and it's the beginning of the story. So it's a little bit weird. And what it's doing is it's reinforcing, again, this is not some just random story that's isolated. This is a true story that is in the, the continuation of God's great story. It fits within the word of God. And so the and, the now, it's connecting it to God's larger story. And so it says, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, Jonah, he was a prophet. A prophet, they were the messengers of God. A lot of times when we think of prophets, we think just those who tell the future, and they did that at times, but namely, they were the messengers of God. God would speak to the prophet, and then the prophet would go and speak to whoever it was God had sent them to. That was their job. That was their role. And Jonah, we're familiar with him a little bit because he's found in 2 Kings 14, and in 2 Kings 14, it's a little bit weird. Because in 2 Kings 14, we see this wicked king, and a lot of times the job of the prophet was to go and to call out against the wicked king of Israel to tell them to repent, to stop their wicked ways. But Jonah's prophecy was actually for prosperity in Israel. And so it's a little bit weird. We're a little bit of suspicious of Jonah as we come into it. And Jonah's name, it means dove, so it has the connotation of innocence. And son of Amittai, Amittai means faithful or true. And so you have this innocent, faithful prophet. But again, it's a great irony because as we read Jonah, we're going to see he is anything but that. And so the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, tells him to call out to Nineveh, that great city. 
Now, when it says that great city, it's not saying it's a good city, that they are a morally good people. No, when it says great, it means large, it means important, because Nineveh is anything but good. Nineveh was unbelievably wicked. It was the, captain, or the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire was unbelievably brutal. Like there are records of them doing some horrible, horrible things. Things like they would take their enemies that they would conquer, they would cut off their legs, cut off an arm, and leave one hand so they could shake it while they died painfully. They would skin their enemies alive and, and post their skins on their great and mighty walls for all to see. And again, this is just the, the surface of it all. They were a brutally wicked conquering empire and they were Israel's enemies at the time. They had battles with Israel. And so that was the setting. That was the place that God had called Jonah to do. He said, hey, get up, go and call out to the people of Nineveh because their evil has come up to me. I've seen it. So you go out and you call out to this people as my prophet. There's a clarity in God's call. So we'll see what Jonah does in verse three. It says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh. Like whenever you see repetition in scripture, it's trying to make a point. It says Tarshish three times in that verse. It's being clear that Jonah doesn't go. It's in fact meant to be kind of humorous as you read. It's got a pattern and a, a rhythm to it. it. says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah and says, get up, go to Nineveh. So Jonah got up and went to Tarshish. He went the complete opposite way. Like there's no room for error here. Like, oh, Tarshish, I didn't, my bad, I misheard you. Or, oh, Tarshish, it's right there next to Nineveh. I got it confused, I'm sorry. No, Nineveh is off in the east. Tarshish is as far west as he could possibly go. It was like the Western part of the known world at the time. And so Jonah hears the clarity of his command and says, nope, not going there. And he goes and runs to Nineveh. And it tells us he's running away from the presence of the Lord. It said twice in that passage or twice in that verse. That's literally running from the face of Yahweh. He is, hears God's command. He says, no, I'm not doing that. And he runs from the presence of God. Now, Jonah should have known better. He knows his Bible. He knows David in Psalm 139 says, there's nowhere I can go to flee from your presence. But Jonah sure was going to try. And so he runs from the presence of God. And us as the reader, as we're reading this, it makes us bring the question, okay, why? Why does Jonah run from his calling? Why does Jonah run from the Lord? And if you're like me, my mind immediately goes, says, Okay, he's clearly probably afraid, right? He's got to be terrified to go to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and call out against it the message of God, call out their evil, is not going to end well for him. Like, you wouldn't think you walk away from that. It's like going to Nazi Germany at its peak and calling out and saying, Hitler, you're wrong, what you're doing is terrible, and proclaiming that in the public square, that probably doesn't end well for that person. And so we're assuming here that Jonah, he gets this call and he's like, I'm not going to Nineveh. Have you heard what they do to people? No. And he goes the complete opposite way. But that's not it. That's not why he runs. Like, okay, well, is it laziness? Does he just not want to go out to Nineveh because it's a task? It's like, no, he runs to Tarshish, which is further than Nineveh. So it's not laziness. So why? Why does Jonah run from God? 
Well, we'll spoil it a little bit. He tells us in chapter four of Jonah. In chapter four, verse two, he gives his reasoning. He says this, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He gives his reasoning. To spoil it a little bit, Jonah does end up in Nineveh and he ends up proclaiming God's message and Nineveh has this mass repentance and God extends mercy to Nineveh and it infuriated Jonah. Jonah hated the Ninevites. He had a deep rooted bitterness towards the Assyrian empire. And what he says, Jonah knew the character of God. He knows he's compassionate. He knows he's slow to anger. He knows he extends mercy. And so when God told him to go to Nineveh, he says, I don't want there to be a chance that you would extend mercy to this people because they don't deserve it. I know if I go and proclaim, there's a chance that you're going to somehow find a way to be compassionate to them, to be merciful to them, and they don't deserve that. You are wrong in what you think. You do not know what's best. And so he runs because he's like, if I'm going to be the one to deliver this message so that they can repent, I'm not going to do it. And then I'm going to mess up your plans because now you won't be able to extend mercy to them because they don't deserve it. And so he runs from the face of the Lord, runs from his calling because he hates the Ninevites. He's got this nationalistic pride within him that usurps every other part of who he is and it's left him embittered towards this people and he says, they don't deserve your compassion and so he runs from them. And if we're not, if we're not careful, it's easy for us to be that armchair quarterback that people talk about all the time. Like people who yesterday were watching football from their comfy recliner and they saw the receiver drop the ball and they're like screaming at the receiver, how dare you just catch the ball, it's not that hard. But they've never had their head taken off by a free safety. And so it's easy to call shots from the couch. It's easy for us and Jonah to be like, Jonah, this is your job. This is literally what you're supposed to do. Get the message, take the message. It's not that hard. You've got the God of the universe on your side. It's not that hard. It's easy for us to judge Jonah. But again, I want us to be careful. Remember the purpose here. God is calling us into the story. He's dealing with the heart of Jonah and he wants to deal with our hearts because here's the reality. We are just like Jonah. We all run. We run in our hard heartedness. We run in our pride from the face of the Lord. That's been our MO from the very beginning. When God created all things and everything was good, he placed man in a garden and he gave man all of these trees to eat from. He said, all these trees, they have all this good fruit. Enjoy it as a gift, as a grace for me. Enjoy them all. In fact, I'll give you the tree of life. Eat from that. But hey, do not eat from this one tree. It has the appearance of good fruit, but it is not good for you. It leads to death. Take all these other trees, all this other fruit, but don't touch this one tree. And in a forest of yes, mankind chose the one no. In a forest of life, mankind chose death. And what it boiled down to was this. Mankind said, hey, I know you've said that this is not good for me, but I I don't believe you. I think you're holding out on me. I don't think you know what's best. And so it's good in my eyes. And so I'm going to do it because I know what's best. I'm taking control of my own life. 
And pride led to the fall. And that has been the condition of every man and woman from Adam and Eve. We all have this pride in our hearts and the bend of our hearts is away from our God. What it tells us in Romans is that the the truth of God is evident to us all, but we suppress the truth with our pride and we chase after our own desires. The bend of our hearts is to run from the presence of God. And our running, it, it comes in different ways, shapes, and forms. Our running can look different. But ultimately, running is when we do not trust the character of God. When we don't trust his goodness. We don't, when we don't trust in his commands and his designs. Running is when we don't trust that he has ultimate security for us, that he's sovereign over all things. Running is when we don't trust that in him is where we find true joy. In him is where we're only satisfied. Running comes when we see other things as more beautiful than he is. And we all run. For some, your running comes when you're laying down at night and you can't sleep because you're just riddled with anxiety and you're spiraling and spiraling and spiraling because you don't trust that God is going to take care of you. You don't trust that his way is best. You don't trust that, that he's sovereign over it all. You're worried about this job, if you're going to lose it or if you're going to get it. You're worried about where you're going to go. You're worried about your kids. You're worried about your spouse. And you're riddled with anxiety because you don't trust the character of God. Or for some, running comes with their finances. And we don't trust that God's going to take care of us. We don't trust that he's got ultimate security. And so we grip tightly to our finances. And it leads to stress on what happens if we lose it. It leads to anxiety of, I don't have enough. I need more, more, more. It leads us to to work crazy hours and forsake other good things. It leads us to be stingy and to hoard it. And so we run from God with our money. For others, we run to a screen for comfort. And we go and we find ourselves scrolling and scrolling and scrolling on social media, trying to find solace in that screen. We run to it for affirmation of other people and acceptance in their post. We, we go and we find ourselves envious of other people. And when people say things that we don't like, we find ourselves embittered towards the person. And we have a calloused heart from it. We run from God. For some, we run from God with pleasure saying, I know you have a design and you've said that this is what's best, but I don't, I'm not buying it and I'm going to run and I'm going to chase whatever fleeting pleasure there is. We run from God with our pleasure. Other, it's with self-righteousness. I'm going to try to, to be a good and moral person so that I can feel like I can accept myself and so that others will, will prop me up and we have this self-righteousness and we run from God in our self-righteousness. Here's the thing. We all run. My running may look different from your running, but we all run from the face of God. And here's the issue. Running from God is running towards death. Sin has separated us from God, and the Bible is clear that the wages of sin is death. That to choose anything other than God is to choose ultimate death. And so we're running away from life and running towards death. That is our condition, and that is what Jonah's doing. He's running from the author of life. So let's see God's response here in verse four. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. 
So Jonah runs from God. And so God threw a storm at him. That's the language there. They took a storm. He threw this mighty storm that God who is sovereign over all things, he sent a storm towards Jonah. He began to move towards Jonah. And if we're honest, this makes us feel a little uncomfortable for most of us. It makes us feel a little weird. Is this God being cruel? Is this God kind of acting like a toddler who doesn't get his way and so he lashes out? Like, this makes us feel uncomfortable at times. Is God not being fair here? Is he being mean and cruel here? Well, I gotta tell you this. If this is God pouring out his wrath on Jonah, it is justified. That to violate a holy and mighty and all-powerful God is to warrant judgment from that God. To warrant just judgment. And so if this is him pouring his wrath, it is well justified. But I don't believe that's what this is. This is not God pouring out his wrath on Jonah. If God wanted Jonah dead, he would be dead. Like there are places in scripture where people violate God, violate his commands, and they drop. This is not God pouring out his wrath on Jonah. The storm is an instrument of God's mercy. That he is pursuing after Jonah with great compassion. Like this is Jonah's complaint about God, that he's slow to anger, that he's merciful, that he's compassionate, that this is Jonah's complaint manifesting in his life. Jonah, or God is moving towards Jonah with great mercy and great compassion. And you might be saying, okay, Ryan, how in the world is him throwing a storm, a violent storm, how is that compassion? How is that mercy? It's an instrument of mercy because of the path in which Jonah's heading. The path where Jonah's heading is towards death. I love the way that Tim Keller says it in his book, Rediscovering Jonah. He says, the great danger of all is that we never become aware of our blindness, pride, and self-sufficiency. See, the great danger isn't that he got caught up in the storm. The danger is that his heart is hard and pride. And to have a hard heart and pride is to die in it, and to die in it is to warrant judgment for it. And so it is a compassionate thing for God to pursue after Jonah, even if it means sending a storm. He pursues Jonah like a loving parent. He runs after him just like a good parent would. He runs after him with mercy. And he tries different things throughout the book. Sometimes it's a gentle conversation where he's asking him questions. There's actually a case in Jonah where he, uh, God orchestrates this plant to shade him and to comfort him. He's trying to get his attention. And then he actually takes the plant away because it makes him uncomfortable. And he's again, trying to get him. He, he speaks to him with, in the way in which he needs. He chases him with mercy in the way in which he needs. And what he needs here is he needs a storm. Because here's the question, which is better for Jonah? Is it better that he die with a hard and embittered heart far from the Lord? Or is it better that God relentlessly chases him even if it means using a storm? See, I love the way that Ben Stewart describes it. He gives the image of a child running towards an intersection. If there was a child running towards an intersection and you saw a parent running after him, screaming at the child, and then at the last second, right before they were to step into the intersection, grab the child with force and snatch them back, and it hurts the child, there's not a single person who's going to look at that and be like, 
wow, what an unloving parent. Like, how terrible of a parent are you? You hurt that poor child. How horrible are you? No, that's the most loving thing that you can do is you chase them and you grab them even if the grabbing hurts. Jonah is running from God in his pride and hard heart. And so God relentlessly and mercifully chases after him with a storm. And what we'll find when we read the rest of Jonah later on is that this is the storm that brings him to the end of himself and makes him ready to experience the grace and mercy of God. Jonah's story is our story. We're all sinners running from God. We all sin, but God mercifully pursues after us. He mercifully pursues after sinners. And his mercy and his pursuit culminates in the person of Jesus. See, what we see in Genesis 3, what we would expect is when God exiles mankind from the garden, we would expect him to be like, done. I'm writing you off. You rejected me. We're done. But what we see as we read scripture, we see a movement of God towards his people. He speaks to them. He manifests his presence among them. He works in their lives. And ultimately, God takes on flesh, becomes a man, and dwells among us. That Jesus, truly God and truly man, lived the perfect life that we could not live. He was fully obedient. And our sin had incurred a debt. It had incurred the penalty of death. And so Jesus, who knew no sin, went to the cross to take the penalty for our sins. And on the cross, he took on our sins and he drank fully the cup of the wrath of God. And he died on that cross, but they took his body and they placed him in a tomb. And on the third day, he did not stay in that tomb. He arose from the tomb in victory with a hope and a promise that if we were to humble ourselves, to stop running in pride and humble ourselves and turn from our sins and turn and trust Jesus, that we would have our sins forgiven that we would find life in him, that if we were to seek the face of Jesus, we would experience life, life in abundance, and life eternally. See, he chases. We sinfully run, but God mercifully chases. And sometimes he chases us with a merciful storm. There's a, a book by a man named Sheldon Van Auken, and he goes by the name Van, and he wrote this book to, to talk about his love story with his wife, Jean Davis, who goes by Davy. And in this book, uh, Van and Davy have this beautiful love story. They fall in love young. They just genuinely enjoy one another. They, he likens their love to that of spring. It's tender. It's, he just has a beautiful story with his wife. And in the, in the story, they find themselves in Oxford where C.S. Lewis was at the time. C.S. Lewis, who's a great Christian writer and thinker. And Van and Davy, they weren't necessarily Christians. They weren't really Christians. They hadn't trusted Jesus for salvation, maybe more agnostic, but they started conversations of faith with C.S. Lewis and others. And then eventually they found themselves in America where Davy began to trust in Jesus. She began to give her life to him. She trusted Jesus for salvation. But for Van, it was hard for him to get there. There always seemed to be something holding him back. He couldn't quite do it. He said, I like God kind of in a pocket, but I didn't want him fully in my life. And in this time, Davy got diagnosed with a terminal illness. And over the next year, um, they planned and they said their goodbyes. 
Um, but Davy prayed and prayed and prayed that Van would learn to trust Jesus for salvation, that he would love Jesus above anything else. And Dan, he, or Van, he prayed for her and prayed that she would just be happy, that she would be able to find that joy that she had in life. Well, after a year, Davy passed away and it obviously wrecked Van. And in his mourning, through some time, he eventually had turned and trusted Jesus. And what he said was what he realized is the thing that was keeping him from doing that to begin with was that he loved his wife more than anything else and he couldn't quite get God's love up to that point. That she was a barrier for him to loving God. And so when he realized that as he trusted in Jesus, what, what was realized, what he kind of realized was that that his prayer for his wife was fully met and satisfied and that she was happier then and more complete then than she ever was in this life there in the arms of Jesus. And the prayer that she had for him had been fully realized in her death as well. That it took her losing her life for him to find true life. And he wrote this in this book, this quote that said this, that death so full of suffering for us both Suffering that still overwhelmed my life was yet a severe mercy, a mercy as severe as death, a severity as merciful as love. He says, that's what it took was the storm of life for me to find the author of life and to seek the face of God and to realize that in him I'm complete and in him I have true joy. It was a storm, absolutely, and it hurt, but that storm was severe mercy from a loving God who chased after me relentlessly. So some of you in here this morning, you've been running from God your entire life. You've been running from the face of the Lord. And for some of you, you don't even know you've been doing that. In fact, you might look a lot like Jonah, where Jonah was in the temple, he was doing the work of God, but his heart was so hard and embittered that he was not seeking the face of God. And so maybe for some of you, you've grown up in the church vicinity, you've done some of the Jesus things, but be very careful to not let, not be deceived of being in the proximity of God to seeking the face of God. Because your heart is hard and you're embittered in your pride. Others of you, if you haven't been in the churchy area, you've been chasing every desire, trying to fulfill a void in your heart that you don't even realize is there. And you've been running from God. For others of you, it's been a deliberate running. You, you know you're running, you've had some trauma, some difficult situation, and you don't want anything to do with God, and you've been running as fast as you could in the other direction. In Romans 2.5, it says, but because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So here's the reality. When Jesus returns, he's coming to judge the world. He's gonna make wrongs right. He's gonna deal with evil and wickedness. And so for us, when we have pride in our hearts and we never turn from our sin and we, we live in this pride and we run from God, what we are doing is we're storing up wrath for us from a just God who will come and make things right. But what I hope is I hope that you have allowed God to deal with your heart this morning. That as you have studied God's word and you've seen the story of Jonah, 
that you've seen how far you truly have run, that you have run deliberately from God. But what I hope is that you've seen that you have a God who relentlessly pursued you with mercy, that he came and he took the penalty of death so that you don't have to. He died the death that you deserve and then he arose and conquered death and is inviting you into true life. He's saying, turn from your pride and rest in me, trust in me, find life in me. And so I hope my prayer is that if that is you this morning, that you would do that, that you would turn from your sins and that you would trust in Jesus. For many of you, you've been a follower of Jesus for for years now. You've been a follower of Jesus for some time. You've had a time where you have turned and trusted in Jesus. You've turned from your sin. You've trusted in him and found true life. But when I, I hear this truth and study this passage, I can't help but think about the old hymn that Come Thou Fount, where it says in it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That we have the tendency, even though we turn and trust Jesus for salvation, we have the tendency to still run. In fact, the author of this hymn, he did that. He wandered, he'd run. It's a man named Robert Robinson. He got saved as a young man. He wrote this hymn later on in life, but then he wandered far from God. And in his wandering, he found himself hollow and empty. And the story goes that he found himself in a stagecoach next to a woman. And this woman was humming that hymn. And she was singing that hymn, saying words like, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. And saying things like, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. And after she got done singing the song, she looked at Robert She said, have you ever heard of this wonderful song? And it just struck him. And here's what his response was. He says, Madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings that I had then. Some of you feel that this morning. You might have given your life to Christ uh, years ago, but you, like so, so many of us do, like we all do, have wandered away and you kind of feel that emptiness that comes from running from the face of God. And you say, I would give anything to have that feeling again. Let me encourage you with this. What it tells us in Romans 8 is that there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ that when you repented of your sin and you turned to Jesus, you instantly became a child of God. And as God's child, you were secured in his right hand. And that there is absolutely nothing external that can take you from his hand, that neither life or death, nor angel, nor demon, nothing can pull you from the hand of God. And I can tell you that there is absolutely nothing you can do internally to free yourself from the hand of God. That you as his child, cannot out his grace that has been extended to you. That you are covered by the blood of Christ. You have been redeemed. You are called his child and you will dwell with him in eternity forever and ever and ever. And there's nothing you can do about it. And so my encouragement, my hope for you is that you would let that assurance 
drive you to repentance. That you would let God's kindness and his grace and his mercy poured out on your life drive you back to the feet of Jesus. That you would confess sins freely knowing that they're forgiven and that you would live in light of this grace, pursuing and running, not after your own ways, not after your own sinful desires, but running and chasing after the face of God because in him is where you find life. In him is where you are truly satisfied. I hope that you will come before him and you'll plead with him saying the the songs even of of the Come Thou Fount song where he says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. God, that, that you would pray to God and say, tether me to yourself, Lord. Lord, keep me from wandering. Lord, let me see you as more valuable than anything else. Let me see you as more beautiful than anything else and rest in the grace and mercy that was secured for you on the cross of Christ through his resurrection as well.